Welcome to Left Foot. We invite fresh conversation on business development. Now here's your host, Nicole Giantonio. Today's episode is sponsored by Lawline, a leading provider of online continuing legal education to attorneys nationwide. Hello, listeners, and welcome to Left Foot. Today's guest is a distinguished fellow in the Center for the Legal Profession at Harvard Law School. Her research focuses on leadership and collaboration in professional services firms, and our conversation will highlight her book, Smart Collaboration, How Professionals and Their Firms Succeed by Breaking Down Silos. Dr. Heidi Gardner, welcome to Left Foot. Thanks for having me. Glad to have you as a guest. I'm very excited to talk about your book. Really enjoyed reading it. Let's jump right in. Heidi, I agree with the premise that clients don't want to be cross-sold. They want smart collaboration. Can you clarify for our listeners the difference between smart collaboration and cross-selling? Absolutely. I think this is a tremendously important distinction, especially in the view of clients. What I call smart collaboration is when specialized experts, like lawyers in a particular domain, combine their expertise with colleagues who have complementary skill sets in order to tackle problems that are too complex for any of them to tackle alone. And those are the kinds of sophisticated, high-value problems that keep clients awake at night and therefore that they're willing to pay for. The opposite of collaboration is cross-selling. That tends to be a very me-centric push the services point of view. So oftentimes what happens is people develop an account plan where they look at the services or practice groups that are available in their firm for any given client. They tick the boxes and say, okay, we've got three out of the seven serving this client right now. Next time I see the client, I'm determined to sell in another one. And clients see right through that. They see it as self-serving. They see it as not client-centric, not taking their point of view as to what services would really help them. And they see it as the professional equivalent of, do you want fries with that? So it's not surprising that they're unreceptive to services that get pushed at them in that cross-selling mentality. In contrast, in all the research I've done with clients, they are desperate to have outside counsel of various kinds of professionals tackling their toughest, most sophisticated problems with whatever skill sets and different kinds of experts need to address that problem. It's a great explanation. And I often wonder how we got here. There's been such an emphasis on selling more and broadening within current clients that firms and consultants and many of the folks that are working with lawyers and and other professionals have really pushed this cross-selling. And it does appear to be, do you want fries with that? Was there a trend that got us here or just professionals not knowing how to grow their business? So they've really defaulted to this more of a push type of sell. Well, it's clear that the market is more competitive than ever. No matter where somebody is sitting right now, they're feeling the incursion of different kinds of firms, different kinds of professionals tackling the problems that were traditionally in their domain. They're seeing the spread of firms that were previously contained or confined to a particular market. And now there's the expansion through consolidation. And so this increasingly competitive marketplace, I think, is driving people to have a much stronger emphasis on things like individual productivity and firm profitability. You know, we can talk about the transparency of metrics like PPP and how that's changing the market as well. And I think 
altogether, those kinds of competitive dynamics are really putting pressure on lawyers and law firm leaders in order to enhance the offerings that they provide to clients. Unfortunately, a lot of them are taking a fairly unsophisticated approach to doing this in pushing out these services, as opposed to taking a very client-centric listening approach to understand what's really keeping these clients up at night. I mean, when I did multiple rounds of interviews with clients of all different kinds, what I asked them about is when they're most willing to pay for a team of lawyers versus a single lawyer. And repeatedly, they came back with this idea that their biggest concerns are that their environment is becoming VUCA. V-U-C-A is an acronym that's getting used more and more to describe the kind of environment that clients feel they're facing. Volatile, uncertain, complex, and ambiguous. And when they're facing a volatile, uncertain, complex, ambiguous world, it's not surprising that they're willing to turn to whichever experts are able to tackle those sophisticated issues. Because lawyers, like every other kind of knowledge worker these days, I mean, lawyers are no different in this respect than doctors or engineers or accountants or architects, people have had to specialize their professional expertise in a narrower and narrower domain in order to stay on top of knowledge that is changing so incredibly rapidly. And so you really have these two competing forces. You have problems that are increasingly complex and multifaceted and crossing disciplines and geographies. At the same time, you have lawyers whose expertise is narrower and narrower. That is the case for collaboration. You need those experts to engage in smart collaboration so that they combine their expertise to tackle these tough problems. That is so right on for what we're hearing. We're hearing firms say we're giving our lawyers and other professionals more training on general business. We're asking them to take MBA level coursework. We're we're doing a lot of things to make them first better business people so that they can listen more effectively when they're talking with clients. Firms are saying, let's make them better business people and let's make sure we have specialization and let's make sure that our professionals are out writing and speaking. There's a lot of different ways that firms are nudging or in some cases directly asking their professionals to go out and think more creatively about growing their business. I think what you've done in your book is talk about smart collaboration as a direction that talks about all of those different areas. What three things could a law firm do to encourage and support smart collaboration as a strategy for growing their business? Well, Nicole, maybe to answer that question, it's useful to back up and say, why isn't it happening now? Great. And through my research, I was able to unearth the barriers to collaboration in firms like law firms. So every time I had a speaking engagement where I was going to speak at a partner retreat or a, a law firm conference, I used it as a data collection opportunity. And I sent a survey to those participants and said, in your own words, what keeps you from collaborating more? And God bless them. Some people treated it like therapy. I mean, they wrote pages and pages <laughs> to tell me what it was that kept them from collaborating with a research research team then, I was able to take those open-ended responses and categorize them and count them up. So now we know across a wide range of firms, thousands of partners in law firms and other kinds of firms, what the biggest barriers to collaboration are. Across firms, what we see is one of the biggest barriers, one of the biggest obstacles 
to partners opening up their client relationships to their colleagues is competence trust or lack of competence trust. By and large, what they're worried about is I've spent decades building this client relationship. What happens if I bring in my partner and they don't deliver to the same standard? Either they're fearing a technical breakdown, some kind of technical snafu, a mistake that's made. But even if they have belief in the partner's legal technical skills, they might have a query about their colleagues' professional competence. So are they going to be as responsive as I am? Are they going to treat the client in the same way? Are they even going to follow the billing guidelines? And the fear that somebody is going to screw up in some ways and derail a client relationship is often a major barrier to people opening up the client relationships to experts who really could add tremendous value in there. Some of the other barriers that we see are interpersonal trust, or at least lack of familiarity. So, you know, if I have a deep relationship with my client, how do I know that if I bring somebody in, they're not going to either undermine me or try to steal my client or at a bare minimum, show me up and make me look not as good as my client always thought I was. And that to me was a surprising barrier that this research unearthed. Perhaps in the five years that I spent consulting at McKinsey, I lived in a bit of a bubble because I hadn't seen that kind of lack of interpersonal trust. Some of the stories that I hear from lawyers make my hair stand on end. They're in some cases rightfully doubting the intentions of their colleagues. In other cases, that barrier arises in firms that have grown up significantly through lateral hiring. And the mindset, whether it's conscious or not, from the incumbent partners is, wow, if she's so good at porting clients from our competitor to us, I'll be damned if I'm going to open up my client relationships and have her walk out the door next year with mine. And so those are the the trust barriers that stand in the way. And sometimes it's back to what you were saying earlier. Sometimes the barrier is simply a lack of understanding how other practice groups or other disciplines could add value to my client. I might know that we offer pensions advice. I might know that we have somebody who's an expert in this part of the tax code. I might have familiarity with something that they do in a different practice group. But if I'm not familiar enough with that kind of expertise to really know what problem does it solve or to be able to listen carefully to my client when they talk about that business problem and then say, aha, I'm not the expert, but I know somebody who's done that elsewhere. And those are the kinds of issues that that stand in the way of people having those broader conversations with their clients and the willingness to open up the relationships to different kinds of experts. So when you understand what some of those root causes are that prevent people from doing it, it's clearer what steps firms could take in order to foster greater collaboration. One of the first things that firms need to do is find ways to establish trust amongst their partnership. It's so blindingly obvious. And yet, I think in these days of profits-focused and cost-cutting, it often gets left aside. So the best way for people to develop trust in their colleague is to actually work on an engagement, a matter, a deal with somebody else. And to do that in enough depth that they really get to understand each other's expertise. And sometimes this takes investment on the part of the law firm. They need to be willing to invest in one of those partners getting on a plane and sitting across the table and hashing out an issue with their fellow colleagues. And they need to invest in the time and the travel cost that takes. At a firm, they might need to invest in some of the write-offs. We can't serve clients 
in their most sophisticated issues unless we're willing to invest in understanding what those issues are. And firms need to be able to provide partners with a bit of that breathing space so that they can invest in learning how to not only know what their fellow partners offer, but know enough about the the sector and similar clients to be able to identify those issues and figure out when those trusted partners are going to be able to add the most value. Developing competence trust at that level amongst partners is really critically important. And I think that there's a lot that firms can do to improve lateral hiring, which will make collaboration much more likely in their firm. Great points, Heidi. Before we jump into laterals, let's hear from our sponsor. Used by over 100,000 attorneys nationwide, Lawline makes continuing legal education easy and interesting. Save $100 today on an unlimited subscription by going to lawline.com backslash left foot. Heidi, I know you have some strong opinions on how to effectively integrate laterals. In the book, I spend quite a bit of time thinking through what are the concrete steps that firms can take to improve what everyone admits is a pretty dismal outcome for the average lateral partner. If you read the statistics, everyone knows that your chances of having a partner come in from a competitor firm and still being there productive and successful three years down the road, the odds know better than a coin toss. That's not good enough given how much time and effort and risk is associated with lateral hiring. So there are a number of steps that firms can take to improve that. One is really to make sure that when firms are considering the business case for a lateral hire, that they're absolutely certain they haven't got somebody in the pipeline that they could develop, perhaps not as quickly, but more reliably into the kind of client service partner that they really need. We know that the, from research, mine and and many other people's research, that internally grown partners are often more successful, although their ramp up period might be a bit longer. Uh, So it truly is an investment, but the odds are higher that somebody who's been brought up through the firm is going to be successful and productive in the longer run. So firms need to make sure that they actually need that lateral hire before they go out to the market. Once they decide that they do have a, a gap and an outside hire is going to be the right person to fill that, they need to be very clear with the group who proposes that hire about how the person will be integrated once they join the firm. From what I've seen too often, partners join a firm and with all the effort that's spent hiring them and wooing them and considering them and putting it forth to a vote and so forth, they're almost left to sink or swim once they join. That's not acceptable. What we need is to have partners who are raising their hand saying, yes, we need a new joiner in our practice group to commit to very specific actions, how they will get that partner involved in their own client work once that partner joins. So my research came up with a finding that I think intuitively people understand, but few people had seen these numbers in such a way before. The analysis we did across different firms was to take a look at lateral hires and understand the role that collaboration plays in making them successful or not. What we found in our research was that if a new hire joins a firm, say from a competitor, a lateral partner joins a firm, they've got 18 months where two things absolutely have to happen. The first thing is that lateral hire needs to be invited on 
to projects or at least pitches with incumbent partners. And the second thing is it has to work the opposite direction. That lateral hire has to be successful in enticing some of his or her new colleagues onto work, say that he's brought with him. And if those referrals don't flow both ways in 18 months, the chances that that new hire will be there at the three-year mark are astronomically lower than if both of those things have happened. What we find is that in the first 18 months, it's a critical period when lateral hires have to have success, both in being brought on to the firm's existing projects and in getting incumbent partners onto work that they generate. That establishes both that competence trust and the interpersonal trust, and it ensures that that lateral hire is sufficiently integrated that they've now got a platform for future success as well. And I think focusing on lateral hiring is a big blind spot for a lot of firms that are looking to foster collaboration these days. That's a very interesting point. Once the lateral is on board, that strategy and that business plan that not only suggests but requires that that occurs can be a a critical factor there. I do think that interpersonal skills, having someone from the firm focus on making sure that that occurs has got to be a priority. Are you seeing that happening successfully at some firms where they are integrating laterals well, requiring that there is a collaborative relationship between that lateral and, say, partners, not only in their practice, but others. Who's doing it well? And is there a very succinct success story you can tell about integration of laterals and having that work well within a firm? There was a firm that has taken a very structured approach to reforming their lateral hiring. So this firm created a structured approach that started long before they actually decided to hire a lateral partner. And it required the proposing practice group to develop a business plan with a set of analytics uh, describing what they think that this new partner could achieve and running some scenarios around, you know, if the market changes, what would the upside look like and so forth. The proposing partner or the practice group needed to develop some of the business plans, described exactly which clients and which opportunities they would seek to get the new hire involved in. And then there was a very clear plan to hold those people accountable for making sure it happened. The best plans in the world are useless unless people are convinced that they're actually going to be held accountable for putting them into place. What we found is that the number of requests for lateral partners has actually dropped significantly once the proposing practice group was on the line. The number of requests sort of miraculously dried up, uh, not entirely, but by a fairly decent proportion. And the interesting outcome there is it freed up then the hiring partners to be much more in-depth in looking at the candidate that were proposed. They have now a very clear set of criteria that include collaboration as metrics for determining whether that partner would be a good fit or not. Previously, they had used the size of a partner's existing book of business as one of the biggest factors in determining whether they wanted to bring somebody into their firm or not. What they understood from my research, though, is if somebody has a very portable, large book of business, they may not be the most collaborative type. If indeed their business is so portable that they alone are able to transport it from one firm to another, it certainly raises questions about the extent to which they have embedded other practice groups and other partners in collaborative relationships inside that firm. So suddenly, they went from seeing a big portable book of business as a mark of 
promise to seeing it as a red flag. Now, what they were able to do beyond that is say, which partners that have a big book of business are able to help us understand how they built those relationships in ways that are both collaborative and portable. And that does happen because people who have extraordinary reputations for particular kinds of expertise can in fact port clients with them, even when those clients are somewhat apparently institutionalized and spread. Those kinds of people are incredibly valuable in the marketplace. This firm, after they understood what they were looking for and how to ask the kinds of questions and do the reference checking that allowed them to understand how somebody had built a big portfolio, they were focused on this different set of criteria and they were much more successful at bringing people into the firm who actually made the effort to integrate. That makes sense. Let's take it from the partner level, collaboration at the partner level. I think you're right. Laterals and integration of laterals, big factor and definitely one of those things that they've done in the past to grow their business. And it's just like corporations would acquire another company, right? It increases their revenue immediately and and gives them opportunity to cross sell, quote unquote, into those new clients, similar with laterals. But when you look at it from a partner perspective, what have you seen that has been successful at the partner level? One of the things I enjoyed about your book was there were a lot of examples. There was one example of a partner that worked with a second partner to go into a high profile potential client uh, somewhere in the outskirts of Australia, not in one of the major cities, and that that partner felt braver. And he said basically that he and the other partner had much higher risk tolerance because they were going into that potential high profile client together. Are there other stories like that that our listeners can really benefit from? There's an example that captures my attention because it is a story about tapping into somebody who's not one of the usual suspects. So I'm thinking of a lawyer at a global firm. This lawyer in in another country had been serving a multinational client there. She needed somebody to start penetrating that client here in the U.S. And the logical thing for her would have been to go to the guru who was in that area and say, listen, we've got this client in Chicago. You've got a stellar reputation. Can we make the first call together and then you pick it up and run with it. And indeed, when this lawyer called people in the Chicago office and various places around the U.S. and said, who's best placed to start penetrating the North American side of this multinational, most of them came up with the same person's name. Turns out, though, that individual wasn't that interested. Frankly, he was a guru because he already had this sterling reputation and he was tapped constantly uh, to go in and, you know, tackle new terrain. What the lawyer did, though, was she kept digging and ultimately she found a fairly newly elevated partner in the Chicago office. And it took quite a bit of digging to, to unearth this individual. But this newly elevated partner was absolutely hungry for the experience. And so unlike the guru who is overtapped and might just be able to spend a few hours here or give some advice kind of offhand, this partner was keen for the work. She was willing to invest. She was willing to take risks personally because she knew that there was so much upside potential there. And when those two individuals, you know, the seasoned lawyer from overseas and the fairly new partner here in the U.S., teamed up to tackle that North American opportunity, the business just exploded here. I think that that is a real lesson for people who sometimes hesitate to collaborate because they say, well, I've tried it, but 
the other party just isn't that interested. Sure, they'll show up to a pitch, but then when it comes time to roll up their sleeves and do the real work, they're not giving me everything that I need. My question back to them is, well, who are you tapping into? Is there somebody who is as keen to develop this client as you are to have it developed? And the funny thing is I often describe law firms as a marketplace that economists would simply scratch their heads over in the sense that oftentimes in a law firm, you've got both excess supply and excess demand. So you've got excess demand for skills like that guru, right? Who's going to be able to go in and penetrate this client and start you know, cross-selling, if that's the word that you want to use, and open up the relationship. So you've got a demand for people who can do that. But you've also got excess supply, these newly elevated partners who don't have a huge portfolio themselves, and they're really keen to get opportunities to go in and build up a relationship. And you know, some of those barriers that we talked about that stand in the way, the risk aversion and the lack of familiarity are often, I think, the barriers that prevent the market from clearing. And if firms and individual partners can take on the responsibility of trying to find those hidden gems, I think that they're going to be a lot more successful in opening up client relationships. And frankly, they're going to be a lot more successful in retaining talented lawyers who want to have those experiences. Great point. And actually a good lead into a question on laddering. I do feel that as we create these client teams, developing strong relationships at different levels that will continue to be utilized as the skills and the expertise of those coming up in the ranks create their specialties. Can you comment on laddering and using that as a way to broaden client teams and really set the stage for what would be stronger collaboration down the road? Absolutely. Laddering is a term that I wasn't familiar with until I started doing client interviews. And I had to ask somebody twice, laddering? You mean like climbing a ladder, right? And they said, yes. And I laughed. I thought this just proves that Americans can verb any noun. But uh, laddering means that there is a person on the client side who is attached to or assigned to somebody of equal experience or equal tenure inside the law firm. So, you know, you have, of course, the lead client partner who's there talking to the general counsel, but then the whole way down through the ranks, you've got the less senior partner who's there talking to some other people inside the client organization, the whole way down through associates. And the very best client lead partners will take associates with them. And while they're having their you know, most senior client meeting where it may not be appropriate to have the associates sit in, they'll turn them loose and say, you know, go talk to people of your, you know, they may not say age if they're very PC, but they may say of your experience level, go talk to your counterparts and ask them what's happening, what's on their mind, what's working well for them. By pairing up people at each rung of the ladder with the inside and the external resources, it allows much better dialogue to occur. It also develops, as you can well imagine, the confidence and the capabilities of people who are coming through the pipeline in the law firm to take this client-centric approach. All of a sudden, clients aren't the thing that you do once you reach a certain level, and then all of a sudden are scrambling to try and take the client perspective. No, if you've been naturally having these conversations as time goes on, you simply start expanding the conversations into more sophisticated issues, higher level clients as they grow up on the ladder with you. Now, I know one of the pushbacks initially is, well, our clients don't pay for that. 
Of course, they don't pay for that. It's professional development and clientele development for the law firm. The client shouldn't be expected to pay for that. This is called an investment. And the law firm has to have the patience and the latitude to allow juniors to have those sorts of experiences. And by juniors, I don't necessarily mean first year out of law school, but I do mean someone before they've been elevated to partner. So at the four, the six, the eight-year level, people should be on that ladder and starting to get these experiences. But it's not all on the responsibility of the law firm as an entity. The responsibility also lies with the associate because I understand from many partners and even from, from some of the associates that I've spoken to, when those sorts of opportunities are presented because of the billable hour demands on associates and sometimes their preferences for how they'd like to spend their time, their first question is, can I bill it? And if the answer is no, they're not willing to make an investment in their own career in order to have that unbillable time spent in dialogue with the client. And I think that's an enormous mistake. I realize, of course, that I'm coming from a biased perspective because at McKinsey, this was how we helped associates grow. You know, from day one in the firm, literally day one on a client project, we would be on site at the client, we'd be interacting with clients. And part of our performance review hinged on the relationship that we had developed with the appropriate levels inside that client. Were we getting directly compensated for it? No, of course not. But we understood how important it was to be able to create well-rounded associates who understood the client's perspective. And as we grew up and became more senior in the firm, having those more strategic, broad-ranging conversations weren't unnatural. Indeed, it was just what one did. This is a really interesting point. We've heard from other folks that we've interviewed on Left Foot, and some of them are not that far. They're considered to be junior partners. Often I've heard they were encouraged to develop relationships at clients with other lawyers that were at their level. These were folks that may have gone to the same law school or gone to a different law school, but to stay in contact with those folks and to really develop those relationships. I have heard this as being a responsibility assigned to these associates on accounts. And that there has been some agreement that it would be non-billable time. But, you know, Heidi, to me, that's the time between the front door and the conference room. It's the time when everyone breaks. These are times that would technically not be billable anyway. Basically using that time to really ask some questions instead of talking about sports. Have a conversation about other things that are going on in the organization. That's the kind of thing that we're hearing from others. You know, in your conversations, in your interviews... I mean, I would assume that the firms are becoming more open to this because they realize that they have to allow these team members to develop these relationships. Has the tone changed? I'm not sure I'm as optimistic as you are. I'd like to be. This is something that I think is crucially important for the profession, not just so that lawyers are able to provide high value service because they understand their clients, but because they're more engaged in their work and they understand the human element and how they're actually adding value, not just to a big corporation, but how they're helping their specific client as a human to be more successful and tackle tough problems. I think that's absolutely essential to keeping great lawyers in the profession and motivated to do a phenomenal job. So I'd like to believe that there is a changing attitude, but on the other hand, And I see a fair amount of evidence that even firms that are preaching 
collaboration are relying on individual metrics, are pushing up the billable hours requirement, are refusing to give credit for these sorts of non-billable efforts that people are undertaking, whether it's for firm building activities or thought leadership or clientele development. And I think the more people get squeezed in terms of the number of hours that are seen as legitimately spent, the harder it is for them to make decisions about these kinds of investments. So perhaps what we're seeing is a bifurcation in the market. You have some forward-thinking firms that actually understand that for the long run, these kinds of investments are truly essential. But I think you've got some firms that are almost in reaction mode to the pressures for financial results this year and are taking some short-term decisions that are ultimately, I think, counterproductive. I have to agree that we're hearing about the stress that there is a lot of pressure, probably not the right time to say we have to sit back and have a conversation around how we're developing these team members, how we're going to plan for the future in business. There tends to be that knee-jerk reaction, go to laterals, go to cross-selling, get out there and talk to people, those very basic things versus a more thought out strategic approach to not only today's current business, current clients, but you know future clients as well. So I'd like to talk about a few more things before we end our time together. You can choose, Heidi, which one you'd like to talk about next, either the role of the ringmaster, which I think can be very critical in collaboration, or overemphasizing origination as being a challenge with collaboration. Which of those two fits well with where we've gone thus far? I mean, they're actually quite intimately tied. The role of the ringmaster master is in many ways setting the context for collaboration to thrive or be squelched. And and part of the the ringmaster's job is to set the incentive program and the reward structure more generally so that that can happen. You mentioned compensation. In your opinion, is that a, a huge part of this? The compensation structure, I know for those firms that really emphasize that the majority of the compensation is going to the, the rainmakers, I think that is pretty adhered to outside of the lockstep firms. Beyond the compensation side, is there any specifics for the ringmaster that we can recommend? Well, I think the metaphor of the ringmaster... I think is itself telling. The reason I chose that is the ringmaster, you know, think of a circus ringmaster, ostensibly they're in charge, right? They've got the whip and they've got the uniform and they're calling the shots, but their job is to keep their tigers on their stools. If the ringmaster oversteps, we, we may see some pretty dire results if the tigers come off those stools in the wrong way. And so I think the element that's really crucial for ringmasters to keep in mind is that the signals that they send both through compensation and their choice of how much to reward rainmakers, the signals that they send are critically important. And there's lots of ways that they can send those signals. Deciding how they want to compensate originators or rainmakers is an important step, not only because it symbolically shows who's valued inside the firm, but obviously because it, in some ways, initially a, a fixed pie, the more those rainmakers get, the less there is to go around to people who are actually spending time servicing the client. For all of the economic realities and the competitive pressures, it's clear that you can't significantly underpay your rainmakers. If the emphasis is too strong on origination, especially individualistic origination without regard for how that revenue is generated and whether it's sustainable and 
whether the account is being opened up and institutionalized. If it's just purely formulaic without regard for the means and simply for the ends, that is, I think, dangerous. It sends the signal that the only thing the firm cares about is revenue right now. What we know from research, both qualitative research with clients, but much more from the empirical research that I've done with these millions of data records I've got, statistical analyses show that clients are in the long run far more loyal and more profitable when they're served by multiple partners. And when a firm focuses very narrowly on origination, they are losing sight that they are creating a fragile relationship with that partner because they're encouraging the partner really to hoard the work and to keep that relationship to himself, which makes it all the more likely that he's able to take that client with him and to hold a credible threat of of departing the firm and taking those relationships along. Origination can be, although seen as a necessary evil, I think it's more evil than it is necessary. There you go. I think a lot of our conversation has been around the firm's ability to influence the situation and the partner's openness or lack thereof. In the long run, it's definitely discussed in your writing that the client can suffer and the client relationship can suffer. Comments on the voice of the customer or the voice of the client and how the voice of the client can really help dictate how firms need to change this and how partners need to change their approach, how they work with clients, if not embrace collaboration, appear to be collaborative with other partners in their firm. Comments on that? I think that in order to be a good client who can benefit the most from collaboration, the clients themselves need to go out on a limb a little bit. They need to show some vulnerability to their outside advisors with the trust that that outside lawyer isn't going to take advantage of it and fleece them. So a great client who's going to really benefit from the inputs of multiple experts is a client who discusses those what keeps me up at night problems with the partner and makes it clear that they don't expect the partner, the single partner across the the table or the desk to have the answer to everything. They need to be able to have wide ranging conversations about here's what my broad business problems are, not just the legal problem, but here's what the business problems are. Here are the kinds of issues where I could really use help. I don't expect you to have all the answers, but do you know somebody in the firm who could have this conversation together with us. And that's what it takes, I think, for the client to be seen as receptive to collaboration and to express their willingness to talk to more than one lawyer at a time, or at least to empower their lead partner to go solicit the expertise of other people inside the firm. I think the voice of the client is very powerful that way. I think there's another angle where the voice of the client is incredibly important, and that has to do with succession planning. Right now, succession planning in terms of who takes over a client relationship is very much of a laissez-faire process in law firms. Most law firms are reluctant to get involved in client relationship management to the level of even talking to the lead partner about whether they've considered who's next in line and how broad the pipeline is and how much effort they're devoting to training their successor. That's a really squeamish topic for a lot of law firms. 
They're reluctant to engage in those conversations, be, either because they don't want to be seen as being ageist or because they don't want to be stepping on the autonomy of this individual who's built a great client relationship. And I think that what I'm hearing from clients is that they're very concerned about a lack of proper succession inside their lawyer teams. It's a little bit like the laddering conversation we had before. Is there somebody at each rung on the ladder? But in particular, clients want to know that there is not only some heir apparent who's being groomed to take over when that lead partner moves on either to a different client or retirement or whatever, but the client wants to have a say in who that partner is. The number of times that clients in research interviews with me told me about a time when somebody showed up from their law firm and said, hey, let me introduce you to the person who's going to take over this account starting next month. And the client said, actually, that's my choice. It was astonishing that you know somebody would have the audacity to not have the conversation with the client. I mean, when I first heard it, I thought, okay, this is a one-off instance. And then again and again, clients literally around the world had stories like this. And so the voice of the client is really powerful when it comes to thinking through succession planning and who's best equipped to run different parts of the account. Is the person who's the lead client partner really the right one for the long term or do they want to see change for some sorts of reasons? And that can feel like a very threatening conversation for a lead partner who really wants to stay in charge. And in many instances, as we're talking about for origination, is incentivized to stay in charge. But it's oftentimes not best for the client. It's not best for the firm and it's not best for the up-and-comers on that team not to have some visibility and some explicit development over taking over the account. We have to begin to understand, even though it's a partnership, is there a time when it's right to intervene in those kinds of relationships and at least help people understand the benefits, even to the lead partner, of bringing on board people who are equipped to take over the account eventually or share the running of that account. It's a great point. It definitely emphasizes what has happened because of the changing economic situation and the competitive environment. Those conversations that might have been more comfortable pre-2008 seems to be less comfortable because we've got such a changing financial environment, a much more highly competitive environment, even in these trusted advisor, high-end consulting arenas. Heidi, very informative interview. So enjoyed reading your book. Any last points you'd like to share with our listeners? before we say goodbye. I always emphasize collaboration as a means to an end. There's a risk that it comes across as a soft topic, but we've now got reams of empirical evidence, you know, from timesheets and personnel files and compensation records and billing records and all kinds of evidence now where we can use real strong statistical modeling to show what the outcomes of collaboration are. And those are financial and strategic and personnel related But the last point I'd like to mention is that I actually believe that there is a non-instrumental side of collaboration that's worth mentioning. What we know is that people are far more engaged in their work and they identify much more with their firm when they have the opportunity to build relationships. Now, that sounds like an obvious point, but there's a tremendous amount of neuroscience that shows the benefits, health benefits, psychological benefits to people when they have the opportunities to build healthy relationships at work. And although we might be interested in collaboration for all of those financial and strategic benefits, it's worth, I think, considering what's 
in it for the individuals when they choose to work this way and they're surrounded by colleagues who are as interested in teaming up in order to deliver high value, sophisticated client service. I think that's incredibly empowering and energizing. Absolutely agree. And in my own career, work situations where we were all very engaged and very much working as a team were the most fulfilling and produced long lasting relationships. Very informative. Enjoyed the interview, Heidi. Thank you. It's been a pleasure having you as a guest on Left Foot. My pleasure indeed. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to this episode of Left Foot. Be sure to visit www.leftfoot.net to access show notes, sign up for our weekday series, and embrace what it means to lead with the left foot. Thank you.